You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Uh, we started looking at this chapter last week. We covered the, ver- the first 16 verses last week. This is the story of the death of Lazarus. And what we saw last week, just to catch everybody up, is that Jesus was informed of Lazarus's health situation prior to his death. And we are told in the text that Jesus intentionally stayed where he was, did not move in the direction of healing Lazarus, right? So his sisters send word to Jesus that Lazarus needs help with an expectation that Jesus would come and heal him. And the text instead tells us that Jesus, because he loved them, stayed exactly where he was. And so last week we saw that while God's love is not always demonstrated in ways we would prefer, we can trust that his actions, even when delayed, will always lead to the best possible outcomes for our faith. That while God's love is not always demonstrated in ways we would prefer, we can trust that his actions, even when they feel delayed by us, they will always lead to the best possible outcomes for our faith. Because we see this theological tension in this passage that Jesus prefers Lazarus to die because it meant something greater could happen. Right? He could have easily gone and healed him. And we've even said that what we've learned from John is that he can heal from a distance too, right? He doesn't even have to go to Lazarus to heal him. <clears throat> but in verse 4 it says, When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Right? You read this for the very first time and you expect to read that he loved them and so he left immediately to go and be with them. Instead it says, no, he stayed two days longer. He took his time, right? And we said that what we find in the first verse of today's section, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. It was real intentional because the Jews at that time believed that for three days the soul hovered around the body and tried to get back in and that that somebody could potentially come back within a three-day range. Day four, they're gone. Day four, they are absolutely dead, right? And so Jesus very intentionally puts this position, uh, puts himself in position to work this miracle where it cannot be questioned, right? So last week we said, be careful not to assume what God's love looks like, that they call Jesus, call him to heal, and he doesn't. Instead, we need to be willing to put God's glory above our own desires. We need to be ready to embrace delays as intentional acts of love, right? This passage says he doesn't heal because he loves them. We need to be prepared to filter death through the lens of God's control, right? Jesus tells his disciples, hey, we're going back to be with Lazarus. He's sick and he's gonna die. And the disciples' response is, why would we go back that way? There's people trying to kill us there too, specifically you, Jesus, Right? And Jesus' response is that it's still daytime, it's not nighttime, indicating to us that he's not worried about the timing of his death. That his death and our death cannot uh, happen outside of his plan. Right, So he's like, no, we're going, we're protected. Uh, God even gives us some indicators here about how we should even view death with this analogy of the sleeping analogy. 
He talks about Lazarus simply being asleep, right? It's a temporary thing death is from the Christian perspective. Um, and then ultimately God controls the fruits of these death or, or the fruits of death in that the disciples' faith is strengthened, Mary and Martha's faith is strengthened, and ultimately the crucifixion is set in motion as a result of this story. The Jews witness this resurrection, and it says afterwards that they do nothing but work to kill him moving forward. So God uses this story to bring about a lot of uh, important good things as a result of it. All right, we come now to verse 17. I want to read for you the text today before we jump into it. It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Our summary sentence for today is, in order to grieve with hope, and that's what we're talking about today, grieving with hope. We talked last week a little bit from uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, how we as Christians are called to grieve differently. We're not to grieve as those who have no hope. We are to grieve as those with hope. In order to grieve with hope, our emotions must be informed by a belief that God always remains in control, always acts in good ways, and is intentionally moving creation to a climactic conclusion that will eradicate death with eternal life. If we're gonna be people who grieve with hope, our emotions have to be informed by God's word, specifically believing that God always remains in control, always acts in good ways, and is intentionally moving creation to a climactic conclusion that will eradicate death with eternal life. For our kids, when we feel sad, we can remember that God cares about us and is working to fix this world so that we are never sad again. We see that picture in Revelation 21, right? So Christians grieve differently. We face death just like everybody else, but we respond to it differently. And I think this passage gives us some real tangible ways to do that. Uh, to respond in a way that, that shows that we grieve, but we grieve with great hope. We grieve with great hope, and I think Jesus is intentionally walking his friends through this story to help them. 
to help them. Because let's be honest, Lazarus is raised from the dead, but Lazarus would die once again. Right? This isn't, this isn't Lazarus' glorified body. His life is prolonged, but he doesn't start to enjoy eternal life after this. And we don't know who lived longer, but maybe his sisters have to go through another funeral again with him. And maybe they respond differently the second time around in some of the ways that we'll see their response today. But in order to grieve with hope, our emotions have to be informed by God's word. He's always in control. He's always working in good ways. And he is moving all of creation to a point in time where we will no longer deal with death, right? And we will only know eternal life, all right? We didn't do sermon discussion questions today, um, but, but some of the questions that I've been pondering in, in preparing for today's sermon is, what does it specifically look like for us to grieve differently than a lost person, right? What does it look for, like, like for a Christian to grieve differently? What should we view as normal in the grieving process And what should we say is outside the realm of faith and trust in God, right? How do we know what it looks like to grieve and to appropriately grieve? And when does it cross the line into grieving as one who has no hope, right? When when you have maybe experienced death yourself, when maybe you have been around uh, friends or family who have experienced that, there's this this normal thing where we expect, hey, that's what should be happening, But as Christians, to grieve as ones who have hope, it should look differently than one who does not have hope. It should look differently than an unbeliever grieving. And so there's some things that we should accept as normal, and then potentially some things that we should accept as not normal for a Christian, something that should be pushed back against, something that should be uh, changed or, or redeemed, something that should look different, right? And so we'll talk a little bit about that today. And then the third question that I've kind of been pondering is how do we move away from a mindset of, I don't think I could handle that if it happened to me, right? Sometimes when we see somebody going through a trial, particularly a trial involving death, sometimes our our immediate response is, I don't think I could handle that. I don't know how that person will handle that. Well, we're not exempt from, from going through exactly what they're going through. Right? And we've been dealing with these questions at Trinity and the loss of our student and, and trying to, 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 to measure how do we respond in relationship to what God's word has to say. And I think it's very biblical for us to get to a perspective where we say, man, with Christ, I can handle anything. Right? That, that my faith and trust is growing and strengthening to where I want to be an individual who could handle whatever life might throw at me. Right? And so we'll talk some about that today. We're going to treat the text a little bit differently today in that we're going to try to cover every verse here in some form or fashion, but we're going to do it a little bit out of order so that I can give you the points that I want to give to you in this narrative, okay? So I want to give you, real quick, uh, some points to remember, some points to take with you for what it looks like to grieve differently as a Christian, all right? What does it look like to grieve differently as a Christian, all right? Number one, we have to seek encouragement from theologically sound comforters, We have to seek encouragement from theologically sound comforters. For our kids, when we feel sad, we need Christian friends to help us feel better. All right? You've got Mary and Martha who are grieving the loss of their brother. Right? And in the midst of missing their brother, right, they're also trying to reconcile where was our friend Jesus in all of this? We fully believe that he could have healed him. You see, Martha and Mary both say that. Jesus, if you had been here, brother wouldn't have died. And so they're trying to mesh the, the feelings of, we're not going to see Lazarus again. 
And they've also got this mindset of, we could have avoided all this had Jesus just come and done what we know he's capable of doing, things that we've seen him do for others, right? So they need to be comforted and encouraged in the midst of this trial that they are facing. And there's some individuals that come to help them, right? It says in verse 19, many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. You fast forward to the end of today's text. What are these people thinking? Well, verse 37, verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And the, the way I read that feels very much like what the Jews are saying at the cross, right? You, you've saved others, can you not save yourself, right? Almost some doubt inter, intermingled with some belief there. Like, hey, we believe you healed the, the, you healed the blind man. Could you not save everybody's friend Lazarus? Like, where were you, right? We know these guys aren't believers, though, because of the text that we'll get to next week. Look what it says down in... Um, Let's see here, verse 45. This is after the resurrection of Lazarus. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the, the onslaught of trying to kill Jesus happens. So you've got, you've got individuals that have come to comfort Mary and Martha, and maybe not the best comforters. These are people who have not yet submitted themselves to Jesus and what he is doing. These are, these are people who are going to believe by the end of the story, potentially. There's, there's some enemies intermingled here. Some ones that are going to go and, and, and say, hey, Jesus is over here doing this. Y'all need to know about this, right? And, and we'll, we'll participate in getting information to, um, to the Pharisees and to these other leaders that will seek to put Jesus to death. We need to seek encouragement from theologically sound comforters when we are going through death, when we are experiencing death, having to grieve through it, we need people that can speak biblical truth to us, especially in moments where we're not prone to remember it ourselves. We need, we need individuals that we know we can turn to. People that we know we can turn to, right? Number two, we need to avoid questioning God's ability to act. I think I said last week that one of the differences that I believe has to be present with a believer grieving versus a non-believer grieving, is that the questions need to look different. The questions need to look different by a believer. We can't question God's ability to act in a situation. Now, the Jews are, are questioning it, but they're, they're uninformed right now, with many of them still needing to believe. They've seen him do mighty things. They've seen him heal the blind man, but is that the extent of his power? So the question that's kind of being asked here is, is God able to do everything that we need and want him to do, or is he limited? Now, most of you have been sitting here long enough to know that, that we've, we've, we've seen in Scripture that God is fully capable of doing anything and everything that he wants, and that he has a will that's in place, right? And that will can't be thwarted. It can't be stopped. It can't be hindered, right? The enemy can't stop it. We as human beings can't stop it. He is moving creation towards this end goal and it will happen, right? And so we need to be very careful to avoid questioning God's ability to act because he's fully capable of acting. We see that in this passage, right? He's informed of it. 
We've seen him heal from a distance. We've seen him go to individuals and heal in the Gospel of John. It says that Jesus loved them and he stayed put. He delayed his departure two days. And that was an intentional act of love. Intentional act of love for them because it says, because he loved them, he stayed. He did not come and heal. So as believers, we need to avoid the questioning of God's ability to act. Number three, we need to guard against disappointment when God doesn't act. And by God acting, I'm using it from our perspective, right? We've said before that God's always working behind the scenes, even when we don't witness it with our eye. So even in this situation, their perspective, Jesus, you didn't do anything, right? You didn't come and heal our brother. Whereas we're getting kind of a back, backstage perspective here. No, Jesus knew, and Jesus intentionally found things to do for two days. He acted on things for two days to delay himself getting there for a very specific reason, right? So we need to avoid and guard against disappointment when God doesn't act in the ways that we want him to. We'll look first at Mary's response. After Jesus finishes talking with Martha, comes to Mary, and she gets to interact with Jesus. It says in verse 32, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was, And saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She has a very emotional response to what's happening here. I mean, you you can hear her heart, and I don't think she's being disrespectful. I don't think she's um, she's being inappropriate necessarily. But I think I think her heart is hurting. I think she's looking at Jesus and saying, if you were here, if you had been here, this would have been different, right? Like, like I know you're capable of this. We asked for you to, to come and do this, and you didn't. And I think she's, she's really having a hard time reconciling that, right? She's, she's got this experience with Jesus where she's seen him do some mighty things. Now when she needs him to do a mighty thing for her, he seemingly doesn't come through. If you'd been paying attention, Jesus, all of this could have been avoided. This would have not had to happen. I can't find any evidence of anybody ever really dying in the presence of Jesus, right? I mean, he's, he's raising people to life. And so she's saying like, look, if you had been here, just your presence alone here would have changed the outcome of this story. She's asking the question, whereas the the Jews were asking the question, is God able to do everything that is needed or wanted by his people, or is he limited? He can heal blind people, but could he not heal Lazarus? Mary's asking the question, why did God not do what I needed him to do if he's capable of doing it? She knows he's capable of doing it, right? She says, if you had been here, this would have turned out differently. So her question is not an ability issue, It's a why issue. Why did you not do this? We needed you to fix this situation, and you didn't. And I wouldn't want to criticize Mary here, because I think her intense disappointment reveals her deep confidence in Christ. Right? What she's saying is, I have full confidence that you can do this. I have full confidence. I'm not not doubting one second your ability to come through in this situation. What I don't understand is why you didn't. Right? Her, her perspective is like what we talked about last week where she's got this real limited perspective, can't see the big picture, 
like the guy who flies in on the airplane and sees the traffic jam and sees how long it is and kind of sees what's happening up front, then gets off the plane, gets in his car, and is sitting in it. Well, he's not confused about how long he's going to have to sit there. He knows exactly how long he has to sit there because he saw it from the air before he landed, right? But he sees other people getting out of their car going like, man, when's this going to end? Like, I don't know, right? Their, their perspective is limited, right? Mary's perspective is limited here. She feels like Jesus isn't doing anything. He didn't act. He didn't love them like she thought that, that he did. But her intense disappointment reveals her deep confidence in Jesus that he's fully able, fully capable of doing this, right? Number four, let's look at Martha's response. Did I get, um, I think I missed our kids there. When we feel sad, we will need to trust that God will make things better. All right, number four, find hope in alternate ways for God to act. Find hope in alternate ways for God to act. We get, and, and maybe Mary has the same perspective. I don't know. We're not giving it to us in the text. So I'm, I'm differentiating between Mary and Martha and their response in this situation. But when you see Martha come for the conversation with Jesus, she has a little bit of a different take on this. She starts in a very similar way in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She's experiencing some of that same tension, that same disappointment. And we prayed for this. We asked for this. This is a good thing for our brother to be healed. Right? He seems like he's probably beloved by many with the group that has come to console them. Right? This is a good thing. This is a good prayer request. This isn't a selfish prayer request. This is a good prayer request. Why did you not answer this, God? She has an emotional response too, just like Mary. But she also has a theological response here too. Right? Her emotions, what she feels, is that I'm really disappointed that you weren't here because you could have prevented this. But then it's almost like Sunday school class kicks in or the, the pastor's sermon kicks in and she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, is she expecting healing still? Is she expecting a resurrection? I don't think so. Because even how this continues to play out, like she's, she's confused as to why Jesus is wanting them to go to the tomb and why they want to open the door, you know, because she's going to eventually say like, man, it stinks in there. Like it's been four days. Like you missed that boat. Like that, that ship has sailed. Now you can do something else that's great, but, but, Lazarus being healed, like that seems to be off the table. What are you going to do to make this better? Like how are you going to turn good out of this situation? So I don't think she's anticipating resurrection, but she is allowing her theology, her belief system to, to start to inform her emotions, right? Because she's saying, I'm really confused and I'm disappointed. And I know that if you had been here, brother would still be alive. But also know you can do whatever you want to. And I know you can ask God anything and he'll give it to you. So she's also admitting what she knows to be true, even though she's not feeling that way probably. She knows what's true. And she doesn't have Romans 8, 28, right? Like it, Paul hasn't written that passage yet, but there's plenty of other Old Testament scriptures that would allude to that. And so she knows you have to work good in every situation for your children. Like you've promised to do that. You've obligated yourself to do that. And so what she's saying is, I'm disappointed. My feelings, my feelings aren't always in line with my theology. I'm really disappointed because Lazarus would be alive if he'd shown up. 
But here's the other piece that I know. You can do whatever you want. And, and whatever you ask of your father, he'll give to you. And so the implication here is she is waiting to see what that's going to be. What's the, what's the end of this story? Because it can't just be you not answering my prayer, Lazarus dying, and now let's move on. There has to be something that happens in this situation is what she's calling for. She's saying, I don't know what you're going to do now, but I know you can do whatever you want. She's expressing belief in, in, in her darkest hour rather than doubt. So the Jews are saying, is God capable of doing what his people need? Or can he just heal blind people? He can't heal sick people. Mary's asking, why did God not do what I needed him to do if he's capable of doing it? Martha's question is, how is God going to work and move to accomplish good since he didn't do what I wanted him to do? Right? So she sees, well, my plan didn't come out the way I wanted it to. What's God's plan? What's God going to do in this situation? Right? I put in my notes, he's never too late. He's never too late. Right? The sisters feel like you're too late to do this now. We'll have to see something else happen. God's never too late. He, 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 he purposefully waited two days to come. He's never too late in our lives either. Remember when we saw the healing on the lake with the storm? It's in the third watch of the night. Like it's in the, it's in the early morning, late night, where you don't know to call it morning or night because it's like three in the morning, four in the morning, right? That's when he comes and, and relieves the storm. That's when he comes and saves his disciples on the lake. He's never too late. He's never too late when he works and moves. Seek encouragement from theologically sound comforters. Avoid questioning God's ability to act. Guard against disappointments when God doesn't act. Find hope in alternate ways for God to act. Right? So we grieve differently as we're asking questions. Why did God do it the way that he's done it? Why did God not do it the way that I wanted him to do it? Right? Rarely are we ever in a situation where we desired the death that we're going through. Right? So all of us are going to be prone to ask the questions, why would God take this individual at this point in time from me? We have to go a step further with our questioning as believers and say, what is God going to do instead since he didn't answer the prayers that we asked? And he, he must have bigger plans in place here. And we look on with anticipation of seeing how is he going to work good in this situation? Number five, Believe the truth of resurrection for today and forever. Believe the truth of resurrection for today and forever. For our kids, Jesus' resurrection means that Christians who die will come back to life too. Look at the rest of Jesus' conversation with Martha. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you, you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Now, what's interesting to me here is that Martha knows about the resurrection from her Old Testament knowledge right? She doesn't have some of the, the New Testament passages that we go to that informs us about the resurrection, but she does have enough from the Old Testament that helps her know that resurrection is possible and that it is something to hope for as a believer. 
And she says, yes, and, and that's kind of the cliche thing, right? Like when, when a Christian's going to a funeral, going through the death of a loved one, well, we'll see them again one day. And sometimes that doesn't offer hope in the immediate, right? Like, yes, I know I'll see them one day, but it's the 30, 40 years that I have to wait that's really causing my pain right now. It's causing the pain right now, right? And so Jesus uh, interacts with her further about this and, and maybe shed some new light to her about the resurrection that she hadn't previously had. The reason I would say that is because 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10 says that that's, that's what Jesus does. 2 Timothy chapter 1, and let me start reading in, uh, I'll say verse 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What's Jesus done? Well, he has come to abolish death and to bring life and immortality, like that, that eternal life, that hope of resurrection. And he brings it into the light. We talked about the Old Testament, full of shadows. You get little glimpses and pictures of what's going to happen, right? But the, but the Old Testament predominantly is veiled in shadows, pointing to Jesus, but a lack of understanding fully of what that's going to be in the New Testament. Man, Jesus shows up and he kind of blows the door off and says, this is what the gospel is. This is what resurrection looks like. This is what it means to go from death to life. It says that he brings that through the gospel and he gives clarity to what it means to have death abolished and life to come and immortality to be embraced. And so I think through their conversation, Martha starts to realize that, hey, you're not just giving me the cliche answer of I'll see him again you are helping me to understand the implications of resurrection, right? And then Martha confesses who she believes Jesus to be, right? If there's any question as to whether or not Martha's a believer, I mean, she is confessing strong belief in the personhood of who Jesus is, right? She, she confesses that, um, I believe that you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the promised one, right? So everybody, we've, every, everything we've been waiting on in the Old Testament I believe Jesus to be that. You're the son of God. So you're more than just a man. She recognizes the deity of Jesus here. You're the Messiah. You're also God. You're the one who is coming into the world. This, this, this hope that starts in Genesis chapter three, right? When sin enters into the world and, and God promises to send the serpent crusher, the snake killer, that someone is going to come to make all things right. She says, I believe you're that one. You're the one who's coming into the world as the promised one, as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Son of God. We know from the New Testament that Jesus is the resurrection and the life because we find in Revelation that he holds the keys to death and Hades, right? He holds the keys to the afterlife. And he informs her, he says, those who believe will live forever despite dying physically. He goes on to say that um, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, how's that true? Because we experience death and Mary and Martha would die themselves. Well, I think he's talking from a spiritual standpoint that those who live spiritually will never experience what the Bible calls the second death, that judgment and punishment that lasts for eternity as well. 
right? And so he says, look, if you believe, you'll live forever, even though you're going to die physically. If, if you'll live spiritually, you'll never experience the second death. Paul even talks about how we experience the resurrection today as a believer, even though we haven't died and experienced that glorified body yet. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul's talking about his desire to know Christ. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then look what he says he wants to know. He says, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What's Paul saying? He says, I want to live the resurrected life now, right? I believe that Jesus, his resurrection power can live in me now, giving me victory over sin, right? Kevin talked this morning about how they're trying to to help these, these people in Nepal realize that they can be set free from their slavery to sin. They don't have to live in bondage to their, their desires, Paul says, I want to know that resurrected life today, right? Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He can allow me to live that type of life today where I'm finding freedom from my sin, right? And then he says, I'm looking forward to the day where I really know and attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul has this perspective of resurrection happens now through the gospel, through salvation, where I'm set free and I live as though I am a new creature, And then he says, but there's also this peace that's to come that's far greater than anything I can experience right now, and that's that future resurrection. We need to believe the truth of resurrection for today and forever. Number six, we need to weep and know that Jesus weeps with us too. Here's the thing that I would definitely want you to know is that there's there's room for a lot of weeping while grieving with hope. We could mistakenly think that weeping and crying and and being sorrowful over death is a sign or a lack of faith. Because we're supposed to have hope. We're supposed to grieve differently than an unbeliever. But what you see in this passage is a lot of people feeling sorrow, a lot of people weeping, and Jesus never steps in and says, what are you people crying for? Like, stop it. Like, you're supposed to have hope and you're not supposed to cry. What does Jesus do instead? And he comes right alongside them and starts crying with them. Right? He is weeping. He's weeping with them. He's sorrowful with them. I think it helps us to see that as a Christian, we don't need to try to hold back the tears when we are going through something difficult, that we can weep and we can know that Jesus weeps with us. For our kids, when we feel sad, we can remember that God knows and he cares. Nobody's ever rebuked in this passage for weeping. It's not seen as a lack of faith. It's an appropriate response to death and other forms of suffering. Jesus weeps with them because his emotions are tied to this situation as well. After Jesus converses with Mary, he steps into this situation emotionally with them. It says in verse um, 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. 
I want you to know that we worship a God who enters into our sorrow with us. He's never lacking in concern or care. What's crazy is that he's weeping over a situation he's about to fix, right? He's also weeping over a situation that he could have prevented too, right? Like he could have, he could have come, or he could have healed from a distance either way, and Lazarus would not have died. So even the tears that are being shed by his humanity, his physical body, he could have prevented those himself, right? But he enters into their sorrow. He's weeping over a situation that he's fully capable of preventing, but his weeping expresses how he feels about his children hurting in response to sin. Before he fixes their problem, he joins in their pain. What's Jesus crying for? I think he's weeping for us as human beings because I think he knows that, that what happened in the Garden of Eden has led to this sorrow. Right? It's, it's through our sinful choice that sin entered into the world and that death came into the world right behind it. Right? So I think as he is seeing, seeing this death play out and he's seeing his friends crying and weeping and sorrowing, he's not crying because he, he misses Lazarus. Right? He knows he's about to resurrect, about to see him in here in a couple of minutes. Right? I think instead Jesus is weeping because of the, the causes and the effects of sin, right? That the wages of sin brings death, and he knows that, that, that death is going to continue even after he brings Lazarus back, right? So there's this, there's this grief that Jesus feels over the fact that, that his creation is, is still in the effects of sin. Now, we know from Revelation chapter 21, verse four, we know what Jesus already knew at this time, that this is gonna get fixed, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I mean, we can weep today with Jesus. We can weep right alongside Jesus. He'll come right alongside us and weep with us. But we also weep knowing that there's coming a day where we will weep no more. It's absolutely appropriate to weep now when we go through difficulties, particularly when they're tied to death. Nothing, nothing unchristian about crying at a funeral. Nothing unchristian about feeling sorrow in the face of death. In fact, Jesus says, hey, I'll cry with you. I'll cry with you through this, right? So we can weep confidently knowing that it has a place in a Christian's grieving process. But then lastly, number seven, apply your anger in the right direction. Apply your anger in the right direction. The way that the uh, original language works here in John chapter 11 in Jesus' response. says, um, verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The, the, the original language there is tied more towards an anger-type response, right? His trouble or his anger is not towards the people that are grieving here. 
It's most likely in response to the sting of death and the destructiveness of sin. I think Jesus is in this situation and he's crying and I think he's angry and it's almost like like it's his motivation to go to the cross to put an end to death, right? Football players listen to music to kind of get amped up before a football game. And I feel like Jesus is getting amped up for what's about to come. He's about to go through through the most difficult time of his, of his human life, right? And he's weeping with his friends and he sees the sting of death, right? And I picture Jesus saying, and this is why I'm about to do this, right? Like, this is why I'm about to go to the cross so I can put an end to this so that Revelation 21 can happen so that I can wipe away all the tears, right? Because he can temporarily wipe away the tears here at this funeral by bringing Lazarus back to, back to life. But if he doesn't go to the cross, if he doesn't attain the resurrection for us so that we therefore can attain the resurrection from the dead ourselves, man, it's just a temporary wiping of the tears, right? And so I feel, I feel like Jesus is like, oh, it's on. Like I am the snake killer, right? Like I'm going to go to the cross and put an end to these type of settings where funerals are not a part of eternal life, right? Like they're not there, right? We're gonna do a whole lot of things in eternity. Go to funerals, which is like my least favorite thing to do, Right? We don't ever have to go to another one again when Jesus comes back, right? And I think when we're at funerals, when we're experiencing death, it should prompt us to hate sin and fight for its eradication in our own life too. Like we need to partner with Jesus in, in seeing Revelation 21 come to pass, right? Like we fight for the gospel. We fight to get the gospel out, right? It's why we send people from their families and from their friends to the other side of the world so that people can hear the gospel. Why? So they can be set free from sin because sin leads to death. It leads to funerals. It leads to grieving and sorrowing and weeping. And Jesus says, man, I'm done with this. I don't want to go to another one of these again, right? Let's take care of this. Let's do what is necessary to stop funerals. I'm going to go to the cross and put an end to it. Right? Seek encouragement from theologically sound comforters. Avoid questioning God's ability to act. Guard against disappointment when God doesn't act. Find hope in alternate ways for God to act. Believe the truth of the resurrection for today and forever. Weep and know that Jesus weeps with you and apply your anger in the right direction. These are the ways that a Christian grieves differently than a lost person. Grieves with hope. Weeps, but weeps with hope, right? And if we, if we build a reservoir of theological soundness, it can inform our emotions when we face the worst case scenarios. If we, if we build a reservoir, we know God's word, we engulf ourselves in God's word. When we, when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, right? We talked about Jesus being our great shepherd in chapter 10. When he leads us into the valley of the shadow of death, that's when we need a theological reservoir to pull from to say, hey, I'm not gonna lose hope in here. Death all around me, but I'm not gonna lose hope in here. I'm gonna trust that he is acting and moving in ways even if I can't see it. Last thing application was, I was thinking about how nobody likes to talk about death. Nobody likes to talk about worst case scenarios, but there's a, a level of responsibility when an individual sits down to make a will or to purchase life insurance, which really should be called death insurance, right? But I think nobody would really want to purchase that if it was called that. So we call it life insurance, right? We plan for the worst case scenarios. We plan for it so that, so that people are taken care of and protected if those things ever happen, right? Lauren and I did this recently with our will. Lauren hates to talk about either one of us dying. Like it's the worst conversation we ever can have at our home, 
right? But we had to kind of press in there and say, okay, what are we going to do if we die? What's happening, right? We do that with physical things. Man, I want to challenge you to think through what spiritual steps do you need to take to be prepared for the worst as well, right? Who are the theologically sound people that you would want to surround yourself with when going through difficult times? Who do you need to make sure knows, hey, I'm going to want you to speak into my life when I'm grieving and potentially moving towards grieving with no hope, you are who I need to come to, to help pull me out of that and help me to grieve as one who has hope, right? What are some spiritual steps that you may need to take to be prepared for the worst? Because we want to we respond with those who grieve with hope, right? I think we can see here where, where even Martha is a great example of, hey, there's going to be some feelings, some emotions. I got to bring some theology into that and say, hey, this is how I feel. If you'd been here, you'd have fixed this. I don't feel this, but I know you can do whatever you want to. And, and I'm looking forward to seeing what that's going to be, right? My prayer is that we can be individuals that grieve with hope, that our emotions can be informed by a belief that God is always in control, always acts in good ways. He's intentionally moving creation to a climactic conclusion that will eradicate death with eternal life. And death's all around us. I visited a school this week um, up in North Atlanta. Five years ago, they lost a sixth grader. Four years ago, they lost a teacher who used to work at Snowbird. Two years ago, they lost a senior. Right? And so they've gone through some similar things that Trinity's going through right now. They've got a prayer garden just like us. They've got memorials set up to these individuals just like us. And it was cool to see how they've been handling it and how they've come out on the other side of it. And that's the thing. That, that, that God carries us through the valley of the shadow of death. He helps us to grieve through that process and he, and he brings good purposes out of it. And we can trust him to do that in our individual lives as well. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for this passage of scripture. And God, nobody wants to talk about death. Nobody wants to, to study a passage that involves a funeral. God, it, it incites so many different types of emotions in us. God, I'd venture to say that every single person in this room has at some point lost somebody that they loved. And there's a grieving process that we all have to go through in that. And God, I pray that you would help us to see how you were working and moving in this account with Lazarus. That we can take that and, and appropriate it to our own life and see that you're working and moving in our lives in similar ways. And God, I pray that as we face death in the future, because unless you're coming back, we will all continue to lose people that we are close to. God, help us to, to do it with great hope. Lord, help us to, to see that you are a God who's always in control, who never, who never uh, delays without purpose, always works good in every situation. God, we're thankful that you act in the best ways possible. Father, I pray that these truths would sustain us when we are prone to question you, when our emotions are all out of whack and, and we are grieving and experiencing the fruit of sin. God, we are so thankful that, that you looked into this situation and said, and we're gonna fix it, and we're gonna fix it forever. And you sent your son, Jesus, to die in our place so that death could be eradicated. 
God, I pray that um, we would find great hope in knowing that the future is a future without funerals. God, I pray that the resurrection would, would create great hope inside of us, that we can live free even today, that your Holy Spirit is working to change those of us that are believers. God, I pray for believers here in this room that we would leave today saying, yes, I believe you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You are the one who came into the world. And that we would continue to follow you with reckless abandon as our great shepherd. But Father, for those that aren't believers in this room, I pray that you would bring about conviction in their hearts. That they would see you in all of your greatness, all of your glory. That you're a God who can can work in the midst of evil and bring about unbelievable good. God, I pray that we would help people in this room see that, that, that you are absolutely worthy of following. And God, I pray that as we've been praying all through our study of John, if there are people here who are not believers, that they would come to believe in you through what we are saying. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.